Welcome to the Leading Change Podcast, where we will be talking to real leaders who have led real change. I'm Steve Wasik, and with me today on our show is Juan Flores. Juan is a longtime AT&T executive who today manages core network operations, who in his last role was responsible for field operations, a group of almost 25,000 people who deliver support of AT&T products in home and to businesses. A few of the topics we got into. First, why as a leader, you should spend over 60% of your time managing the culture and the strategy of your organization. Next, Juan tells the story of creating culture change across that group of 25,000 people and describes the most important thing to consider when creating change. He also tells the story of the biggest mistake he's made as a leader and describes how you can learn from his mistake to better lead your people. This was an amazing conversation with Juan, and I am so excited to bring it to you today. Juan, thank you so much for being here today, man. It's great to have you. Yeah, thank you, Steve. I'm really excited too. It's great to be able to talk about some of these things that we get the chance to experience in our career. I, like you said, I'm a longtime AT&T employee. I have 37 plus years with the company and, uh, you know, you never stop learning, right? At, at every point in your career, you always learn something and it's a, it's a great place to be. Yeah, absolutely. So just to get right into it, Juan, we're going to be talking today about culture. We're going to talk about changing culture. And so the first question I have is just how do you define culture? What is culture? And what does it mean to you? Yeah, that's a great question, Steve. I mean, I mean, to me, the culture is at the heart of the organization. It's what we're about, right? It it really defines us as a entity, so to speak, in this major, in this you know huge corporation. We're a small piece of it, but it really defines who we are. It defines how we run our business. It defines how we interact with other partners, internal and external. It defines what is important to us from a from a business perspective is really customer really number one and are we acting that way how how do we define ourselves in in this ever changing business and, and and by the way that definition changes over time depending on the environment you're in right i mean Absolutely. We, we've just experienced a, an opportunity to change our culture again in the way we think about our business and what's important to us and what's important to our customers so that's the way I would define it. So, yeah, I, I think that point that you just made is, is a really good one. I think we're living in a crazy time. There are probably yeah. more challenges going around. I guess right. you've been a leader who it seems to have invested in culture throughout your career. And I'll let you speak to that. But why is it important for leaders to kind of wake up in the morning and get their day started and to prioritize culture? I I learned this lesson before I was promoted to senior vice president, and I was uh, I happened to be assigned a, a mentor, and it was John Donovan at the time, and and uh, you know have these discussions about what what does my day look like, what is what does an average day look like, and at the time I had uh, the network operations centers, and we were responsible for managing and and maintaining global infrastructure, which you know you think about and I used to tell my team this all the time, think about what it is we do. One outage in our space affects millions, 
It's not the one-to-one -one relationship. It's the millions to one. And so it, it really was an important function that we performed. And so my explanation was, look, I, I spend my day driving results and making sure that our performance is, meets the expectations of our customers and our corporation. So, you know, we have to have five nines reliability and that's what I spend my day. It's how do I, how do I minimize outages? How do I recover from outages quickly? How do I make sure that outages never happen again? How do we learn from them as an organization? That's why I spend my time. And he said something that really got my attention. He said, look, as a leader, if you're not spending over 60% of your time thinking strategically, then you're doing a disservice to your organization. That's what they count on. That's what they look for, is for the leaders of the organization. And it, you know, it's not just me, it's every level of leadership. The people on the team look to us for setting that North Star, so to speak. What's the, what's the direction we need to go? And I always say this is like, what does goodness look like and how do we know when we get there right if you don't know what goodness looks like and you don't know how you get there then you don't know if you're on the right path as you're as you're headed towards that and so um that's what i think about from a culture perspective if i if i know i set the tone for the organization of what i want our culture to look like and then you have to communicate that and you have to constantly communicate that so that everybody can do a self check to say yeah, we're doing the right things, or yes, I agree with that, and I'm heading the right path, but no, I need to, maybe I need to push back, right? You create an organization where you have open and honest two-way discussion. Maybe maybe that's how you get the feedback that you need to change the culture or change the direction of where you're taking the organization from a culture perspective. But it's a day-to-day -day, uh, effort, right? You have to constantly be thinking about and constantly be, evaluating whether you're sending the right message or not, right? It's what you do. Yeah, there's one thing I want to pull out because I loved what you said. What does goodness look like? I think that's probably a really good takeaway for a lot of people. When you think about that, are you thinking about what does goodness look like in terms of our business results? What does it look like in terms of how we treat each other? Could you kind of define, you know, because I think that's an easily yeah. takeaway item. How do you define the different categories or layers of what does goodness look like? Yeah, that's that's a great question because you're right. You know, I mean, we're all measured on results at the end of the day, right? Did we come in on budget? Did we meet the reliability results that we have? Do we have the right number of people? Are we as efficient as we possibly can? All those are, are pretty simple. You have a scorecard and you can you can define goodness really, really easily. But it's the surrounding parts of that that define how do you get goodness, right? You could get goodness, you can get the goodness from a metrics perspective and nobody's happy and nobody likes what they do and nobody likes working with you, right? And so you really have to get at the heart of the culture of the organization and then and then goodness on the results almost automatically just comes, right? Everybody's on the same page. Everybody's working towards that same common goal. And you're doing it together as an organization to try to get there. And then the, the metrics are almost second nature. I hate to say that because that's what that's how we get paid, right? That's how that's why we succeed in business. You have to have the right results from a metrics perspective, but it can't be your core competency or your core focus area because you will miss a lot and you'll only get to a certain level of 
of uh, results unless you really have that culture that you want to develop in the organization to get beyond that. If you do that, you can leave metrics behind and you'll over deliver every time. I, I like to tell my organization, especially in this new organization that I have, I want to be the organization that starts with yes, right? That's the culture of the organization. I want to be the organization that people come to because they depend on us to always help, always look for that right solution, whatever it is the issue is. And and it, it's really a culture that it's funny in our business, you know, we have our structures and we have our lines of organizations and everybody's responsible for their silos. It's like that in every corporation. But when we're in a disaster recovery environment, or we have a hurricane, a tornado, flood, ice storm, fires in the West, earthquake, you name it. When that happens, we get a call to action that just triggers something internally that all of that fades away. The whole organization turns to an organization that starts with, yes, I need fuel trucks over here. I need resources over here. I need generators over here. I need access to some Air Force base, or I need to figure out how to get uh, to South Florida on roads that are closed. So I need, you know, whatever that happens to be, everybody's all in to go make that happen. And you don't get this pushback on, well, I can't do that, or well, that's not in my responsibility, or well, I can't make that decision. It's just, what do we do? What do we need to do to make it happen? And and what we have to try to do is we have to figure out how to capture some of that, understanding the constraints of budgets and everything that we have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. But how do you capture that attitude of starting with yes and make that a part of your day-to-day life? And that's what we have to be. I want to be the organization that people say, hey, we want to get something done. We need to go to core network operations. They're going to help us versus having people try to work around you because you're so difficult to deal with. You never become a part of the, of the solution. Absolutely. That's, that's a challenge for us. So Juan, I want to kind of get to how you do that, right? I think there's a lot of people out there that might say, I want my team to be the most disciplined or the most hardworking, or I want my team to be the group that says starts with yes. And I, uh, I'll give you the option because there's a couple of ways we could do this. I think what you did within field operations is a really great way to talk about, talk through how we establish culture. 25,000 yeah. people is not a small amount. And I think you really did a great job there. So uh, if it's okay with you, let's start there. Could you explain when you took over field ops, what you walked into and just kind of walk us through sort of the change that you created? Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, it's a great example. What, one of the things that I always say that I love about my job is that I'm in a position now where I can set the tone for the organization and I, I can actually watch the culture transformation over time. And it's, it's an amazing thing to watch as your organization starts to gel and to start to get to a point to where you believe was right. Now, I will tell you this, every leader thinks Different things are important, and, and it has a different view of what the culture of their organization, which is really, if you think about it, it's the reason why changing leaders out and changing people out on a regular basis is a good thing, because you bring different ways of thinking about the business, and you look at it from a different lens um, every time. And so every time I take a job, you know, everybody talks about their 30, 60, 90-day plan, right? 
every time I take a new job, my first 30 days is evaluating the culture of the organization. And it's going to be different every single time, every single function that you take over, it's going to be different. Think Different things are going to be important. And you have to think about what, evaluate that culture and say, are we in the right place uh, to succeed or what I, we believe that that goodness looks like, and can we head there, or do we need to do something different? Is it a tweak or is it an overhaul, right? And you have to do that in your first 30, 60 days, and you have to communicate that uh, up front. And so in the field operations organization, what, what I, my evaluation, my first evaluation was, we had two different issues that we had to deal with. One was we had organizations that were really, really good at delivering results but they did it within their silo, right? And so you had competition was the main thing was how do I get to be the best? How do I get to be ranked one out of four regions, right? If I'm number one, I'm the best. And I don't really care what happens to two, three or four, right? But as long as I'm number one, that's what's important to me. And so you had this, this competitive culture, which it in itself is not bad if, the whole team wins, right? And so quickly, I let the organization know that, at least from my perspective, I weight much higher an organization that comes in third place but helps the whole team win versus an organization that comes in first place and they don't share any of what they've learned to get there, right? So to me, it was like, how do we get to, and one of our culture pillars now that John Stanky is looking for us to to transform our culture to as a corporation is win as one, right? So how do we win as one? If you have one that's doing really great and you got three other organizations that are struggling, then we haven't done anything as an entire organization. We've just got a winner and three three people that need some work, right? If you if you bring that together in a common cause and, and you work together, then the ranking is irrelevant. It's the whole organization wins. And that was one thing that I really had to had to stress to our organization, and that was pretty easy to change, right? I mean, over time, uh, sometimes you have to change people, right? I mean, it, like I, I used to work with someone that said, sometimes to change people, you got to change people, right? I mean, so it's you know, it's just how that works. But but over time, you can get to the right place. The, the second thing, which was an even bigger challenge, was. What I was noticing was we had a dispatch operations center that was responsible for managing our day-to-day load, right? They're responsible for looking at all of the volumes of demand work and non-demand work and figuring out how do we set up our dispatch strategy on a day-to-day basis so that we can be the most efficient possible. They, they would look at drive routes. We had a We had a new tool called Dispatch Learning Engine and learning is a key word there, right? Because it gets better over time. But that was used a ton of very intricate algorithms to say, based on these volumes and based on these technicians that are at work today, here is the best way we can route their logs, build their logs so their route is the most efficient possible. Yep. And one, right? these are the AT&T technicians that are doing in-home service. Is that right? So the person that's fixing your Wi-Fi. Yeah, there are consumer, consumer uh, techniques, yep. right? And so, uh, and some business as well, but um, th- at this time we were really focused on consumer because it was the biggest part of our field operations business. 
but you had you had the doc, so the dispatch operations center, and I refer to them as the quarterback, right? They're the ones that call the play. And then you have field operations that has to take that play and run it. Well, what I could see real quickly was we had two entities that were not talking to each other, right? One entity on the dispatch side said, man, I can't get my job done because they don't do what I tell them to do. They go do their own thing. I had the field entity that would take what they did and they would undo it every day and redo it in, you know, in how they saw best, right? What they felt was the best way to dispatch uh, our technicians. And what, what that caused was this animosity between the two teams that says, you know, I, I do what I do, but you're not helping me. And I do what I do because what you do doesn't make any sense. And I know better. And so what I really, what we really had was little dispatch centers all out in the field that were doing their own thing. And that's all well and good. And, and they, they have a point. They do know their technicians better than anyone, but they don't see the big picture, right? In this case of the dispatch operations center, they're looking at the entire entity and saying, you know, I need, I have more demand over here, less over here. I need to move these stacks over here to cover the load so that we can get it the most efficient way possible. And the smaller entities are just looking at their own geographic territory. And so we just weren't a cohesive organization. And the dispatch operations center was in a different organization than my field operations team. And so I saw that real quickly. As you go out and you start to talk to the teams and you start to evaluate what it is, the feedback you're getting, and and you could really tell that you had these two entities that, that were not working together and didn't want to work together. So that was the challenge, right, is how do we get to a single organization? How do we get to really play our role, play the quarterback team member role and get our efficiency as high as possible because we had some major financial challenges that efficiency was one of the big drivers, right? If you think of an organization with you know 20,000 technicians and my partner had another 20,000 technicians, if you lose you know 1% of efficiency across 40,000 technicians, it's a lot of Absolutely. Work. So we had to work it together. And so I started with saying, okay, what are the issues, right? Why Why can't we make this a better process? Why can't we work together? And and I would hear all of the things from the dispatch center and they were saying, oh, the field guys, and they don't do this and they don't believe and they fight us on every turn. And every time we build a log, they'll change it. And they, their first thing in the morning, they come and undo everything we do. And then we're responsible for this and can't, you know, got the all the back and forth. And then the field guys were like, they have no clue what we're doing. They don't know what we're doing right, blah, blah, blah. And it became apparent to me was that neither side understood what the other did. And neither side understood the impact that what they did, how it affected the other team. So I said, okay, guys, here's here's what we're going to do. We're going to start walking a mile in each other's shoes, right? And, and it, it got dubbed the walk a mile program. And, and the reason that was important is because what I said was, I'm willing to invest at a time when we've cut travel and expense and we're making sure that we're not spending any more money on overtime than we have to. And we're, we're really cutting down because we're tightening up our budget. I think this is an essential expense for the company. And I'm willing to invest in traveling people from the dispatch center to the field and traveling people from the field to the dispatch center and spend quality time, not a day, and they're not ride days, 
right? I don't want center people coming in, getting in a truck and going out and seeing things. I want you to go and sit right next to your partner and do your job right next to the person that you're, that you deal with. And that way, when you, your partner runs into a roadblock, all they have to do is turn to you and say, here's what happens when you do that. Here's what I have to do. And the other way around saying, okay, here's why I did what I did. And here's why it looks like that. Here's the logic in that. And, you know, I started talking that up and people's just, I mean, it just kind of started to snowball, right? I mean, it was like the first time, one, the fact that I was willing to invest money in it and not cut it, make it an essential uh, part of our business really sent a huge message. This is really important. If we're cutting everything else and we're still doing this, this is a really important deal. And then the fact that um, every opportunity I had at every visit, every field visit, every town hall, every open mic, I set the expectation in my organization that we're going to establish this quarterback player or quarterback team member role. And that's the way we're going to run. And my expectations were that the dispatch center is the quarterback. They call the play. And I even used, you know, sports examples like you know, how many teams win when you get into the huddle and the quarterback says, hey, we're going to run this play to the right. It's going to be a pass to the right. And somebody on the team says, yeah, I'm not going to run that. Play. I don't like that. I'm going to run a different play. Right. Then what do you have in the field? You have major chaos. Right. You, you, you hike the ball. And the teams are running every direction. Quarterback has no clue where everybody's at. And if you if you make a successful play, it's by luck, right? It's not design. And so I would use those examples all the time. And I would get every opportunity I had to get the teams together and do joint open mic sessions, joint town halls, so that everybody heard the message that said that my expectations is that we're going to play this role. It's not going to be perfect, Right. And that's what happens was anytime someone would make a mistake, well, the other team would highlight it. There you go. That's what I'm, that's what I'm in. That's what's happening. If they don't know what they're doing. It's called dispatch learning engine for a reason. It has to learn. And it, it's just like your kids. It's just like you. If you don't teach it, it doesn't learn. Yep. Right. And by you changing things on your own without letting the center that's responsible for teaching that system to do the right things, It'll never learn and it'll never get better. And that's where we have to be. And so it was delivering that message every day, every day, every opportunity at every level in a manner that every level understood it. Right. And so you have to learn to talk uh, and deliver the message at the level that makes sense to the people you're talking about. Technicians have different interests and something things mean different things to a field technician, a frontline employee than they would to a, a director, for example, right? And you have to deliver those those messages in that manner. And you have to make sure that they're getting a message. And then you have to set the expectations that you, you want to hear about the progress they're making. What did you learn? I invested money in having you travel back and forth. What did you learn from that? What actions are you taking from that? And give me timelines and own it, right? Tell me, you, you're going to change this. Here's who's going to own it. Here's when we'll be done. And here's the results we expect. And you start setting those expectations. And it was really funny to watch because at first I had one team that really took the lead, started doing that. And then as the other teams started to hear, well, wait a minute, they're, 
they're really into this and they're starting to make some progress. Well, all of a sudden, every team started reporting on it. And here's what we're doing on Welcome Island. And we had, in our ops review, for example, we had dispatch center leads, the lead from the dispatch center, actually present in their ops reviews. And so they became a part of that team and it just started to gel. It really, really went really well. You know, I could tell. And like I said, it's fun to watch. You know, I went, I'll I'll never forget, I went to one of the dispatch centers when I first got here and I told this story and I told what I really wanted, where I wanted us to go as an organization. And and the response was like, yeah, we'll see, right? Sounds great, but we'll see. You're saying the right things, but, you know, you need to show us. Uh, And then when I went back, you know, a few months later, the difference was now all of a sudden, where before you had field operations was on one side of the uh, room and you had dispatch center was on the other side. Well, before the meeting, they were all intermingling, talking to each other, joking, laughing. And, and then they all start to sit together as one group. There was no differentiation left and right, you know, one side and the other. It was an entire team. And you could tell in the discussions and the questions and the comments that they were making that we had really made a difference and we really made a shift. And it was it, it was fun to watch. It's one, one of the best things I've ever been a part of and one of the most fun things to watch as I watch this huge organization. Now, we weren't perfect by any stretch, right? We still had our challenges sure. um, and we still had to make some changes, but it was really an awesome awesome thing to watch happen yeah i i love that story and it's really cool to hear an ending where people came together and they they kind of followed along the culture that you designed and then as a result they were happier they liked work more they got more out of it right it was great i mean it was so it was what was so interesting was you know we had whether we had uh you know kickoff sessions for business plan meetings, or we had ops reviews, which is where the leaders get together and they talk about the good things happening. Everyone would always compliment the other, which was so great. I mean, you think about, hey, uh, we couldn't have done this without our partners over in the dispatch center. And you listen to the dispatch, our partnership with so-and-so in field operations is amazing. It's the best it's ever been. And together, we're able to do these things. And they start all of a sudden now uh, working together. And it's like they're they're giving credit to the other team for, for helping them achieve these great results versus before it was all, here's why we can't, because those people over there, those guys, are that, that team doesn't. And it just, I wish I could have recorded it because it was just so different. So, one, could you help us unpack a little bit of the how? So I think that's an amazing story and it really, really well sets up that, that culture change is, is possible, right? And we, could, we can look at a big, big group of challenges across a huge number of people, right? But if we focus on and prioritize as you did, investing in culture, we can totally change results. But could you sort of unpack, yeah. uh, you know, maybe and speak to a leader out there who's faced with a similar challenge? What's the how? What are the main things that somebody needs to get get set on in order to get from point A to point B? I think the very first thing is you, you have to do a self-assessment. What What is it you're trying to change? What does, you know, like we've talked about, what does goodness look like? Uh, 
And you have to make sure that your your leadership team, whatever level you define that, could be one or two layers, whatever layers you define as part of your leadership team, you have to define that for them. They have to understand it and they have to buy into it because, you know, I've always said this, if, if you're not honest about what you're saying, people see right through it, right? You could get up and say anything I write down for you on a piece of paper, but if you don't believe it, you've lost the game. You have to believe it and you have to get your organization to believe it, right? The worst thing that can happen is you have a culture, you have an idea of what you want that culture to be. You communicate it and your team's communicating something different saying, yeah, I don't really buy this, but here's what they want us to do, right? And that could, that will hurt an organization. So you have to get the buy-in of your leadership team. You have to define it. Define it in a manner that everybody can understand and that it means something to everybody you're trying to communicate that to. And then you have to get buy-in. And then once you have, once you get buy-in, you have to set the example. Every opportunity you have, you have to set the example. You have to set the example in the questions you ask, right? For example, if you're out talking about a problem that you're having, uh, then ask the question that says that that channels the discussion towards where you want the culture to be, right? If it's working together, then ask the questions about why can't we work together? What's it going to take? What is keeping us from doing this? Why can't we get beyond this piece? What's the decision you have? We have to make to get beyond this. If it's opposing priorities or opposing challenges, then make a decision and and get to a common solution, get to a common point where you can move on beyond that. But you have to drive that every single day in every opportunity you have. And as soon as people, the team starts to see that you mean what you say, then it becomes automatic. Yeah, right. You just start to hear from them. You're going to start getting questions from them. You're going to say, hey, we really like this idea of, you know, quarterback role. But here's what keeps us from being able to do that. Can we do something about this? And then you have to take that serious. You your feedback's a gift. If you ever get the feedback, a, any feedback that says you can't get to the point you want the team to get to, then you have to make that decision. You have to go make a change, whatever it is. Either you have to say, we're not going to change it, and here's why, and get everybody to understand why you can't make that change, or you have to make that change, and you have to be quick about it. You can't. Here's another statement I like to make that sometimes makes people cringe. It says, you know, quit admiring the problem, right? I mean, if you can't admire the problem. You can't just see it and hope it goes away. You have to hit it head on. And when you do that, people start to see it. And it doesn't matter what level that is. It's not just your direct report. You have to do that at every level. When you're out talking to technicians and they're pushing pretty hard on why they don't like a certain something, then you have to you have to either own it and say, you're right, I need to go make that change and then make that change and communicate that. Or you have to explain to them why it is that you can't do what they're asking, but you have to do it in a manner that they understand it. Because uh, otherwise they'll leave that session and say, I knew it, right? He's not, he's not really certain or they're not really no, certain. I absolutely love that. And I think, I think the authentic way of leading and listening that you're describing 
is something that that people gravitate toward. And so I, I love the way that you framed, you know, get down and listen, and then you know, don't shy away from problems. Find the problems, and then work work on those. That's how we actually create the change. That's how we bring it to life, right? Right. Right. That's really, really good stuff. So, uh, one, I want to touch back on on just the change you created. A question I get a lot is, if we invest in culture, what's our return on investment? What's going to be the What's going to be the data if we do the ride-alongs? And you know, you made a big decision to get people to you know, you spent money, and and hey, that could have come down on you, right? One, why are you spending all this money? Yeah. So just just to to kind of put a bow on that story, what was the ROI? I don't know if you could go into lots of detail, but can you speak to some of the data change that, that you experienced? You know, it's hard to put a dollar figure on it, right? I mean, it's hard to put a dollar figure on how much is it worth for people like coming to work, right, every day? How much is it worth for people like working in, in your organization or working with or your organization? What I'll tell you is, if you think of the inefficiencies that we drive into the business by having to overcome those challenges of not working together as a cohesive team, it's a lot, right? If I spend six weeks on a solution versus six days, that's a lot of money and a lot of horsepower that I just wasted, right? I don't know that you could ever measure it, but I'll I'll tell you, I think that's the biggest piece. You know, from a metrics perspective, uh, in our example, we just got more efficient. We, We really were able to utilize our dispatch strategy that we designed to get more efficient. And I mean, it's, you know, if you think about how big that is, it takes into account every technician on the job every day and understands how fast they do certain types of work, where they're located, what the traffic looks like, those kind of things, dispatch time, uh, duration, all of those things takes all that into account and then sets the day's workload every single day and to the extent we can follow it as closely as we can we get more efficient and that just means you're in a much better space from from a cost perspective right our whole goal is how do you run the business in the most cost effective manner that you can right and it, it helps you helps you deliver good service right it helps customers if if you're on time to a customer appointment that customer is going to stay with you longer. If that customer stays with you longer, what does that mean? You get more jobs. You have more jobs, right? That's how you communicate that to a frontline employee. Why should I do this? Well, in the end, it's about keeping more customers, which in the end means we get to keep more jobs. And that's what that means to you, right? And so that's what I would say the, the return, you know, just from a talent perspective, if you can create that kind of culture where people like doing what they do, then look, I'm not Pollyanna and think they're going to be happy 100% of the time, but at least they feel like they matter and they feel like they're adding value. If you can create that kind of culture, then you will never have a problem with your good talent wanting to leave and your good talent not wanting to come in. Right? And so you create this, this churn of great talent, great leaders, great people working in the business and everybody's really happy about what they're doing. And all of a sudden now it's an organization. That everybody says, man, I would love to work in that organization. And, you know, where versus, man, why would I want to go be in field operations? Why would I want to go do that if you're constantly going down people and the load and blah, blah, blah versus, hey, 
you know, that's a great place to be. I, I really want to be a part of that. And it just helps from an overall talent perspective. It really, really does. And you can't put a price on that, but it's, it's invaluable. It's priceless. I love it. That's a, that's a great answer. Juan, you've been with AT&T for a long time, but it, it feels like that was a really important experience for you. When you look back, what are you going to remember most about that experience? And, you know, years from now, when you reflect, you know, what, what does that experience mean to you? Wow, that's a, that's a good question. I, I think I'm just really proud of, of being able to create a culture that people say they want to be a part of, right? I mean, I think when you look at being able to have that kind of impact on an organization as big as ours was and as important as ours was, to the overall corporation. And it doesn't matter whether it's field operations or center operations, you pick it. When you can have that kind of impact to build an organization that has sustainable benefits and sustainable culture uh, transformation where people believe that they matter and they can add value and that it's a place to be, I don't think there's anything better, right? And so when I look back, on my career, it'll always be one of those highlights that I could say, look, I, you know, most people will say an organization that big, it'll take years to change it. We did it in months, right? In months. And to be able to do that, you know, to be able to say, look, no, you're wrong. It's not going to take forever. You just got to be focused and you just got to drive the right behavior. And it doesn't happen unless you set the example then that means that I learned as well, right? And so it, it was a very, very enlightening time in my career and a great place for me to be. It was, it was really fun. That's really awesome. Fun. So I, I want to ask you, Juan, because you are a, a guy who's had a lot of success. You're an SVP at a big company like AT&T, managed 25,000 people. I'm sure you could be an intimidating figure in, in certain circumstances just because of how successful you've been. And I bet when people got to spend time with you, they would look at you and say, wow, Juan's got it all together. <laughs> this guy knows what he's doing. And mm -hmm. what I want to ask you is, was there a time, maybe in this situation where you changed culture at field operations or just another time in your career, I'd love to learn about a time where uh, you could open up about doubting yourself or a time where you really didn't have it all together um, or maybe even a low moment that, that, that sticks out to you. Yeah, I'll tell you, I, I love to tell this story because it really was a defining moment in my career, at least as, as a leader. I had, I had gotten promoted to vice president and was asked to take over field operations for UVerse uh, when UVerse was first getting started, right? And normally what you do when you create a staff organization is you go pick your best and your brightest, right? You go get the people that are the leaders in your organization, they're the best at what they do. You put them together on your staff, and that's the ones that are going to help you lead the organization. And, and we used to do this thing that, that we would prepare for our ops review with my boss every month, right? And so what I told the team, and, and by the way, this team of folks, we had worked together for a long time, and so we knew each other really well. We got along really well. We were very open and honest with each other. So it was fun, right? When you get together, it was just a good time. We're, we still get together now. But 
in preparation for that, what I would do was I'd say, look, let's come, let's have a meeting seven o'clock on Wednesday morning, pick a day. And I'd say, let's, let's create the deck for our ops review and just come to, don't bring anything with you. We'll just, it'll make, we'll make it a working session. We'll work it together, which I thought was great because I was helping develop the material. And as I developed that material, then the prep sessions were not required because I already knew what the material was. And so we would get together on these calls and we would all have a good time. We would joke back and forth and we would talk about what we wanted. And we'd build slide by slide. We'd say, okay, on this slide, we want our financials. On this slide, we want our metrics. And on this slide, we want, I like this project and this other slide. So we would kind of build it as we go. And I thought it was great, right? And, you know, I thought we were doing great things. And then after one meeting, my chief of staff came in my office. He was right next door. And he said, hey, we need to talk. And I said, okay. I said, about what? He said, well, I want to talk to you about this meeting we just had. I said, okay, shoot, what's up? And he said, yeah, you know, it's not working. And I said, what do you, what do you mean it's not working? And he said, well, he said, you know, you, you think it's great. He says, but you're, you're damaging this team and you don't even know it. I said, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I said, that can't be. I said, everybody loves it. Everybody loves being a part of this team. We all have a good time. We all, you know, enjoy cutting up and going back and forth. And, and you know, we're all working together. There's no levels, right? It's, it's uh, everybody can say what they think. And he said, yeah, not so much. He said, here's the deal. He said, this team, he said, you have the best and the brightest on your team. And their number one goal in life is to make sure that you look good, right? And prepare you to do the right thing so that you look good. He said, when you bring them to a meeting and you tell them not to come prepared and you tell them what to put on this presentation, then then the message that they're receiving is, why do you, you don't trust us to do what we are, what our main purpose is, then why do you have us, right? If, if that's the case, just tell us what you want. We'll go put it together and we'll move on. If, and I mean, it, it floored me, right? Just the thought that I was damaging a team of individuals that I considered the best in the business, inadvertently, unknowingly doing that just scared the hell out of me, right? It really did. And I, I mean, it so much so that I had to take a step back and I had to think about what I was doing. And it really, the, the major lesson it taught me, which is something I live now every day. And that is you can never assume that the message that you believe you're sending is being received in the way you think you're sending it. You can never assume that. And you constantly have to evaluate and validate that what you think you're doing and the way it's being received and the way you're being perceived is exactly what you think, because it's not always going to be right. And so I, I owned it and I took, went to the meeting the next time and I said, guys, here's the deal. I, one, I apologize for doing this. I thought we were doing great. It was never my intent to make you feel like you weren't a valued part of this organization. So from now on, you guys go create the deck and you can review it with me and we'll move on. And I'm telling you, the change in the organization, the, the change in the, in the, quality of the material that we put together after that 
didn't even compare to what we were doing before. It was phenomenal. And the organization quickly, quickly adjusted to that. And that team quickly adjusted to that. And they, they got to a point to where they loved what they were doing. It, it, uh, it scared me, right? Because I thought I could have really, I could have really ruined a really good thing here of people that I really depend on to help me run the business. Um, and it, it, like I said, it, it is now, it's, it's almost, you, you could call it healthy vulnerability, right? Healthy, I call it healthy anxiety, healthy vulnerability that you feel you have to constantly question yourself on is what you're doing really being perceived in the manner that you believe you want it to be perceived in? Are you really perceived as a leader that, that they can trust as someone that they believe in as someone that they believe has the passion to support them in what they do? do you know, all of those questions around what you think you're delivering, how you think you're being perceived, you have to question that all the time. And that was a huge lesson for me. Amazing lesson. And thank you for opening up, as you said, with some, uh, some healthy vulnerability. Yeah. How do you do that on a day-to-day basis one? That's, uh, such a, such a good lesson because there was such positive intent to what you were doing and yet there was harm there. Right. So on a day-to-day basis, how do you maintain that mindset and, and how do you put that into practice? You know, you have to look for opportunities to set the example and you have to look for opportunities to validate it. Right. You have to think about it. you get in, a, in on a town hall and you have to you deliver a message and then you have to be about validating that that's the message that was received. Right. Hey, you heard me talk about so and so. Tell me about what you think about that. Was that the right thing Did you hit? Did it hit the right message? Did you understand what we were saying? Or when we talk about that, what does that mean to you? You have to just look for those opportunities. And when when I am in a meeting or I'm with my staff or my team or we're doing ops reviews i'm constantly asking questions that help me validate that that's the way the message is being received right i'm constantly asking questions about have you thought about this or what if we did this or you know i love what you did but did you go far enough do you think you know one of the things in this new organization from a culture perspective uh, that i saw was it, it felt like we constrained ourselves because of external things that we thought could happen, but we didn't develop unconstrained views of what our opportunities really are, right? So it's like when I, when we were doing the deep dives, like you do when you take a new job, you ask, okay, well, have we done this? Well, no, we haven't really thought about that because we're not, we don't have the resources. And, and so what I told the organization was, look, Go out and give me an unconstrained view. Don't don't worry about resources. Don't worry about funding. If you had, if you were king for a day, and you had everything at your disposal, what are the top five things you would go work on? And it really just changed the way people thought about it. We have we have a, an initiative. I'm getting way into this, but we had an initiative that we're working on now that we're going to invest two hundred million dollars in the business to get back $300 million of savings and 175 run rate savings. So it's the gift that keeps giving 175 million. But it's all, what I asked the team was, go go get a small team of folks and think about those things that you wanted to do 
but you haven't gotten the support either from a resource or a funding perspective and put those on a piece of paper and tell me what you can do. This team in six weeks, under eight weeks, I gave them eight weeks to do this. In under eight weeks, they came back with a list of 80 things we could do different if we would just support it. And, and these are things that, and in all honesty, it's things that when we do them, they're going to say, what the heck? We've been talking about this for 10 years. Why haven't we done it? And and now we're really, it's gaining some momentum and we're getting it done. And it's all because, you know, we set the tone of, hey, go think differently. And I'm going to support you in thinking differently and tell me what it is you can do differently, right? So every day you have an opportunity to find those areas of setting the tone and setting the example. Every discussion you have, you can set the tone, right? Even if it's just, you know, having a discussion. When we do ops reviews, for example, I ask so many questions that we, sometimes we can't get through the material, right? And and really, the teams will apologize for, oh, we didn't get through all of it. And, and I say, I, I don't ever want you apologizing for not getting through all of the material. The most important things we can do in our business is have an open discussion back and forth. And if we go down a rabbit trail and spend 30 minutes talking about an idea and we both get a better understanding of how it is we think about the business and what we could do differently, then I don't care if you get through a deck or not, right? It's time well spent. And when you get to that level of comfort, right, with each other, and people start opening up a lot more and they'll start talking about things that they can do different, what they want, what they need and how they could make it happen. And then you get to that point to where you do have an organization that starts with yes, because they're going to feel like, hey, even if it's a bad, I call them my Miller Lite moments, right? Sometimes I come in, I'm like, hey, I had a Miller Lite moment. You might tell me this is a crazy idea, but what do you think about this? And, you know, the organization says, yeah, I don't know. Let me go see. Let me go. I never get, hey, we can't do that because we've already tried it. I always get, let us go look at it. And then when they come back, it's either a, a no, we can't, here's why, or no, we can't, but here's what we can do different, right? And so, you know, that's all you can ask for in the team. I love it. I love all of the passion in talking to you, Juan. It's great stuff. Yeah. I want to just, before we, we get out of here, I want to ask you one one last question. So here we are, 2020. It's been a pretty wild year. Uh, we're both working from home. I, yeah. I'd love for for you to speak to to other leaders out there just about some some advice that you have about managing in moments like we're living in, right? In crisis and challenge and in turbulent times. You obviously are a guy with a lot of experience in leadership and in building great cultures. What is your advice for the leader out there that's just trying to hang on to their team and bring people together? Yeah. The team again. The team's going to look to you to set the example, right? You you got you can't panic, right? You can't panic. You can't get into a position where you're you're shooting from the hip and people start to feel that and there's no direction and they feel like you're panicking and that you're you you don't have faith in the organization to adjust to the new environment to do what they need to do to succeed and continue to run the business. You have to be calm, cool, and collected. And then you have to drive the discussion to think differently about how you solve the problems in an environment that's way different than what you used to be in, right? And, you know, in our case, we have a storm. We could get, we used to get people in a war room 
together to say, okay, all calls are going to come into this, this one war room, and we're going to be able to run from there and go get, you know, whatever we need to go get. In today's world, it's all virtual. So how do you manage in a virtual space? You have to think about how do you make sure that, that people have the answers they need right at their fingertips. So think differently about that. Create some new solutions. Make decisions quickly. Don't linger on these decisions because that's that's going to give people, if you linger too long, people believe are going to believe that you, you don't have control of the situation. Make a decision. And you know what? If it's wrong, correct it and own it and quickly, right? Fail fast. You, you've heard all those terms, right? Fail fast. Make a decision. Try it. You know, it, if someone says, hey, what if we did this? Then go say, okay, let's go try that. Pick a smaller area. Maybe maybe there is some risk to it, right? But pick a small area and say, okay, come back to the team tomorrow or day after tomorrow or next week and tell us how that worked out. And then tell us what lessons you learned and how do we make it better so that everybody can do that. But be willing to take those risks. Don't say, well, we don't want to do that because you know, last time we did this or if this happens, if that happens, let's go try it. Limit the blast zone and give your team the flexibility to go think outside the box and try something different and, and react and act on all of the issues that they raise up and do it in a manner that's not chaotic, but just systematic about how you do it. You know, if, if it's good for one, it's going to be good for all, right? Or maybe it's not, but you have to, you have to define that. You just have to remain calm and know your role. Right. Your role is not to come up with all the solutions. Your role is to support them and your role is to set the direction for the organization to stay calm and be that leader that supports them in whatever they need to do. They're the experts. I, I've always said I don't know a whole lot, but I know who does. Right. And that's to me, that's a definition of a good leader. If you know who knows, then you can rely on people to do what they're best at. And you don't have to try to do that. Right. If, you could hurt more things than you could help if you're trying to be the, the expert on everything that you do, especially when you have a diverse organization. So that's what I would tell you. I would just say, you know, calm, cool, and collected, manage and understand the role you play. And that is that people are going to look at you to set the example of how you want them to, to move forward in, in this time of crisis. Amazing. Well, Juan, thank you so much for, for being here today. I really appreciate this. And I learned a ton uh, from our conversation. So thank you so, so much for joining. And uh, I'm looking forward to, to seeing what you do with Core Network Ops. It's going to be exciting. Yeah, great. Thanks, Steve. I really appreciate the time. I, I really hope uh, hope some of these things can help some folks. And, and like I said, you know, everybody's different, right? Every leader has a different profile, a different personality, a different part, different way that they prioritize the way they run their business. And the thing I've always done is I've always just tried to take the best parts of everybody and make one big, you know, strategy. And that's what I hope I, I was able to help with, at least give someone a piece of something they could use to, to be successful. with. Yeah, you absolutely did. So thank you so much again, Juan. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Enjoy right, it. We'll talk soon. Wow. What an amazing conversation with Juan Flores. I love his passion and his energy for this stuff. And I hope you took as much from our conversation as I did. 
if improving the culture is the focus of what you need to do with your team right now, we are teaching free online workshops between now and the end of the year aimed at helping you become a better leader and to build stronger culture in the time that we're living in. Go to www.igcompass.com and click workshops today. Thank you so much again for being here and we'll see you next week. Can't wait.